Welcome to the Pessimist Guide to a Hopeful Future, a podcast about serious stuff hosted by someone trying to take things less seriously. I'm Chris Kenworthy, I'm a coach, and I'm curious about different ways to frame the ongoing botched experiment that is humanity. Every episode I'll interview someone I think will intrigue you, usually a leader, a thinker, or a doer in social and environmental circles, and then I clumsily interrogate them on how they relate to the world, all the while trying to relax and not be Mr. Sensible Podcast Bore. Whatever happens next, I promise you you'll hear at least one interesting person persuading us whether there's a future worth hoping for or not. Let's find out, shall we? Backstory. So last year, I was wildly reaching out to strangers on the internet, kind of network building, and loads of that fizzled out, but not with Lawrence, who I'm really drawn to, and I sit somewhere between fanboy and being a bit intimidated by him. You might know Lawrence as the lazy guru. Uh, He wrote a book with the same name, all about freer ways of being your natural spiritual self. He also wrote a brilliantly funny novel called The Optimist about his adventure meeting famous figures and figuring out how to save humanity uh, and himself. Lawrence describes himself as a seeker, a speaker, and a coach. So follow him if you're into creativity, innovation, and leadership. And also if you just like really wise, gentle, funny stories, the kind he publishes on Medium, enjoy the interview. I'm exploring the pessimism, optimism thing, different dispositions, the outlook on the world, basically in the context of the way it sometimes feels the world is going. Now, I came across this theme before I'd actually read your book, which is really fortuitous. You're probably a few rungs ahead of me on the ladder of exploring this theme. The theme of the theme of optimism and pessimism. Yeah, optimism, pessimism, and which is an appropriate way to greet the world in the context of all these existential problems that are hitting us, climate, pandemics, you know, political turmoil. And I'm testing my own prejudices for and against various outlooks, whether we should approach the world with sort of cheerful abundance and happiness, or whether we greet it with sort of gallows humour and gritty cynicism, the way I have traditionally related to the world. So I'm, I'm I'm looking into that as a as my lens, but also just to chat to interesting people who I find fascinating and see what they have to say on, on the subject. When we first chatted, you talked about the idea of being fellow travellers, people on similar or related journeys. It feels to me like if we're going to use the travelling metaphor, you've perhaps travelled further into the, the reaches of the creative analytical mind and you seem to have come back with freer ways of being your natural spiritual self through things like the lazy guru and the art of no idea. You describe yourself as a speaker and coach, you're into creativity, innovation and leadership, they're your things and your day job is conveying an actual, this is to quote you, an actual living experience of what it's like to be open and relaxed in the face of uncertainty to bring people into a space they usually sell their grandmothers to avoid. Uh, and it's that relationship with uncertainty that I'd like to explore today. So that's that's where we'll be orbiting. Last night, I was um, a funny thing happened. Like I thought I was ready to talk to you. I thought I'd got my questions and I thought I knew what I wanted to ask you. And then I sort of, I, I did a little bit of a listening of some recent interviews of yours that you've done for other podcasts. And I thought, oh shit, this, this guy's a really heavyweight intellectual genius. And my questions are, are really simplistic. And I wanted to ask a few questions about a theme he wrote a book about, like you say, a long time ago, 10 years ago. I'm talking about the optimist there. Is, is your relationship with the, the optimism, pessimism thing, is, it, is that still a theme in your life? Is it still relevant? Yeah, thanks. It's a really nice question. And it's especially precious to me to be asked questions about my life and my work at this time, because I'm also, in addition to the whole reframing I'm doing around 
viewing my work as an exploration in the commons. I'm also reframing what I've done as having value rather than, what's the right word, dismissing it or neglecting to value what I've done because there is in me that explorer that just wants to keep moving on to the next thing. So I really cherish that opportunity. And when we talk about our stories, when, when I find when people ask me about my story, it always brings something into focus. It crystallizes something for me. No is the answer. It doesn't, it's not, I'm not sure if you asked me a yes or no question, but it's great. <laughs> it's great. It's right. It's right on. Do, does it live with me? I think you asked. Not really. I'm not thinking about optimism and pessimism really at all, except that I find pessimism amusing. Whereas before I used to find it threatening. And I, and I think there's great artistic and comedic value in my dad's pessimism, and he's in, he's in the book, and he's still a pessimist. He's the great unsung pessimist of our times. The things he comes out with are just so priceless. I met him a few weeks ago, you know, just before the last lockdown. He said he'd been thinking about, um, he'd created an, an unsatisfactoriness index about life because uh, he thought that was a better way of measuring things. And so I just thought, God, it's such a shame that my dad's never written a book or I still dream of interviewing him in some sort of really comprehensive way. I, I'm constantly scribbling down what he says because it's just so funny. <laughs> and, uh, and, I'm, and yeah, I'm so completely diametrically opposed in a way to his, his outlook. I also love the, um, the humanness of being able to grumble or even just to acknowledge that life is really fucking hard. And that's very important to me. So... It's funny, Thomas, because I, I had you down as more, I mean, I don't know you well enough. I, I've, I've read your, your stuff and we chatted a few times, like you say, but I sort of had you down as a, a hopeful pessimist because you're a funny guy that perhaps you were tapping into that well, because you, you've rightly pointed out the connection between pessimism and humour. The two seem to be quite in, inextricably linked together. I think, uh, yeah, I think humour is about, is about honesty foremost. It's about honesty and surprise, right? So comedy is about surprising people's brains basically and you do that either by just going far enough into discomfort territory that you know it's it's cognitive dissonance um or you do it you know other you know clever stuff that i don't know enough about but i think that honesty is itself unfamiliar enough and surprising enough to often be very funny you know when you're re recollecting bad experiences from the past it's always easy to laugh at it I think now I take life more seriously and I'm more nurturing of, of life. Yeah, and so I'm, not, I'm less inclined to take the piss. <laughs> but, uh, but if I still show up as funny, that's great, you know, accidentally. Yeah. I think, I think I, in my experience, optimists are quite serious people. Yeah, and the pessimists tend to be just brutally honest and funnier. I mean, I, I know I've simplified it there, but... No, I think you're right. I think pessimists are funnier. I don't... That's absolutely right. Over the, just the thousands and thousands of years of being alive on this planet, humans have had to depend on a degree of optimism in order to survive, right? You know, you're, you're leading your small tribe of like fur-clad semi-Neanderthals through the ice flow. You're not sure where the hell you're going, you know, but you're running away from some kind of hostile tribe or polar bear. You, you don't know if you're going to even live to the next day. A degree of optimism, I think, is probably a survival factor, right? It's probably bred into our DNA. Hence, when the pessimist comes along and pricks it a little bit, you know, enter the humor, discomfort, surprise factor. It's like, whoa, 
you're like, you're busting some taboos there, buddy. And that's really funny because we're all trying to keep a brave face. So if someone just says, looks really shit, isn't it? Then it's quite funny. As long as they're not bringing the tone, you know, as long as they're not sort of really depressed or, you know, or really angry, that changes everything because they, they're wanting to, to dump it on you. But <laughs> that's different, right? It is different. Yeah. I mean, it's funny in, in my sort of um, self-important way, I see, I see the role of at least cynics somewhere along the pessimist scale is, is to be that safeguard, that person who pricks the bubble and says, you know, we're going a bit too far here, lads. Let's get back to reality. You know, that and humour is a device. That's a realist, I think. I mean, I, maybe cynicism is a realist's device to prick over optimism, but I tend to think that we've bifurcated into different personality types as a way of dealing with the complex, infinite challenges and potentials that the world and life throws at us. So just like in a family, if you have brothers, and I mean, do you have siblings? I, I'm not sure I've asked you that. Brother and sister. Yeah. Right, yeah. So you, you notice it almost always happens that you tend to like choose your niche, right, as a, as a sibling. Like, you know, I'm the musical one, or I'm the clumsy one, or I'm the funny one, or I'm the artistic one, or I'm the helpful one, or you're the rebellious one, you're the bad one, I'm the good one, all that. And I think the same thing happens writ large in, in humanity. We specialize cognitively in, in a kind of emotional outlook on life because we need all of those things. We need pessimism, obviously. We need realism. We need optimism. We need all of those things for creativity. In fact, creativity is, is, is incomplete or impossible without all of those things. You know, it's a bit like Walt Disney. He had this idea of three rooms. Um, I think he had the creator, the dreamer, the realist, and the critic, something like that. And he'd actually sit in these three different rooms with his scripts. So he'd tear up his scripts if it wasn't good enough. But I, but I think we, you know, you need all of those things. So I'm just going to, go back to your first question about does it still live with me where it lives with me now is that what i care about is is wholeness it's about integration i care about not outsourcing my stuff onto other people i've got to be my own optimist and my own pessimist i've got to be my own realist otherwise i'm going to blame other people for doing it i'm going to resent them for doing it i'm going to begrudge them for being more optimistic or more depressed than me so i've got to do it i've got to own it all so that i can actually be creative i can be resilient i can i can see what's what i think that's where it, how it lives with me now that that's interesting you bring this this wholeness up there, there, there was something you mentioned on a, another interview that i listened to um of you and you'd said that you really enjoy transmitting paradox that this idea of being professional yet scruffy productive yet lazy bounded yet creative it felt like a really interesting way of living and that to me sounds like wholeness right you're a living contradiction you've got all these different sides of yourself all coming together and you own a lot of it oh that sounds unbelievably pretentious if i did say that i mean i i i sorry it doesn't sound pretentious it just sounds like post-rationalization because i would love to think i was projecting a paradox i mean i like most people struggle with my identity i'm thinking like oh i should be less scruffy or you know i should I should be more professional or i should project or alternatively i should be much more natural my website should be much more creative and quirky and colorful so i struggle with being all those things but i think under what you said there is an ideal which is to be at home with everything with being everything and actually i remember when i was a kid you know you start worrying about what you're going to be when you grow up you know you, know, you mm. realize that people have jobs and you go oh geez 
And I, and I think when I was eight or nine or something, I said, I want to be an everything man. Um, and I, I often think about that. I've never been good at making choices, <laughs> narrowing down my options. There's an element of that. But I think there's a deeper element, which is that I do, in a sense, want to be an everything man. I don't need to, you know, climb uh, Everest and, you know, be a scuba diver and be a mathematician. But I do need to notice that everything worldwide occurs within me and is in some sense created by me. I'm responsible. I'm co-responsible for, for what I see in the world and um, certainly my experience of it. And that's what it means to be an everything man. And the older I get, the more I notice that no one's flaws are alien to me. Stupidity, arrogance, um, prejudice, cruelty, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that I have experienced in myself or, or potentials for me. And so that sounds very, very um, highfalutin in a way. But that's the aspiration to be an everything man. This theme of uncertainty is in the air, and I'd, I'd like to just just zoom in on that a little bit, if, if I may. This thing you do professionally, the, the coach and the, the, the guy who brings people into a space, you know, this uncertain space. If I've got this right, you, you, you welcome and, and perhaps champion uncertainty in an environment, you know, the business world and the corporate world. It's quite a pessimistic thing, is, is uncertainty. You're bringing it into that environment and helping people gain comfort with it. And oh, exactly. No, I mean, I, I don't exactly do that. I mean, I, I don't use uncertainty as part of my, my spiel or my sales pitch. It's not something that I'm selling to people. And, you know, there are people who do. I experimented last year with, with doing that with a small group of people. I'm still doing that. That's called the art of having no idea. That's very explicitly for people who kind of are interested in and get the value of hanging out in a space of not knowing. And that tends to attract what therapists, coaches, coaches, artists, and seekers. For the business community, you're not selling uncertainty, you're selling resilience, or you're selling team performance. I mean, it's tricky. This is why you have to, it's why I find it hard. You have to translate the very high concept stuff that I care about because I'm just naturally kind of in my head and in the clouds and I'm philosophical down to grounded needs that people have that they, that they want solved, right? And you go out there and you ask people, have you got a problem with uncertainty you want solved? Like, no, that's not the problem, right? It, it might be lurking behind everything, like the fear of death, but I don't want to do a workshop on the fear of death. I'd, please, we're just not hitting our targets, right? So, and it's, it's even the same for me, Chris. I'm like, am I really scared of uncertainty? Uh, well, probably, but maybe I'm also just, maybe I'm just scared of suffering. And maybe I don't like feeling pain. And, and maybe uncertainty is just a version of that I, I don't even know it's too big and vast to you know to make us a, a market store and sell pancakes from it's too vast it's like death but i think it's a nice thing to talk about with philosophical folk like you and me you know and uh, in the business community there is a language around vuca you know volatility uncertainty and um forget the other two i make the journey safe for people and i do that because i'm for whatever reason, a light-hearted kind of fellow, and I and I can make people feel relaxed. You know, it's like going back to the '60s or '70s when they did, you know, it was that confrontation therapy, and like I'm going to bury myself alive, and 
the hippies, the Dutch, the Dutch, the Americans, the Germans, all just going for this kind of full-on encounter with death and Zen emptiness. And I think that was hugely important. But now I think it's about taking care of each other. And I think there's that much fear everywhere. You, you, you know, ease people in to a space where they surprise themselves by revealing something about themselves. So, so it's not about control of uncertainty in any way. It's about comfort and peace and embracing, perhaps even laughing along with or at the uncertainty because of the way you are and you can handhold people into that space. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. It's just reminded me of something. I think that the freer you are as a person, when you are with other people, they, that gives them freedom. In fact, someone told me that once when I asked for feedback, which I periodically do. I go through a kind of process of asking people for like, who am I? What's my value? It's a coaching thing, right? And you hear great things back when you ask that question. But like some people said to me, you give permission to other people to be a certain way because you are a certain way. And so I think that's it. I think there's truth in that. I am quite good at being with uncertainty because I've, for whatever accident of fate, have developed a very high tolerance of, um, of ambiguity. And I'm able to tightrope walk uh, a little bit more than most people. I'm able to improvise. And so when I'm in a room with, with you or with a group of people, they're like, there's something opens up. But still, I structure the hell out of my workshops, right? Because it makes me feel safe and, I, and, and they're safer. And then that can happen within it. But like I say, this is research. It's ever evolving and changing. Yeah, I, I read something that's really beautiful. And I thought it, it sums up a, a challenge a lot of people have is wor working out their validity and whether they can help people with a particular problem. You were talking about creativity and uncertainty. You said, the only reason I'm so good at this is because I'm so bad at it. And I interpreted that to be because you've experienced the highs and the lows, particularly of the uncertainty, creativity thing, that that makes you so good at helping other people deal with it. Have I, have I understood that correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I can't say that I'm good at. So, so let's say there's a couple of things going on that I'm bad at, that I'm therefore able to help other people with. One, one of the things that I'm bad at is feeling okay when there's empty space because I was left at school on my own, I had nothing to do, my family were far away, I was scared, I was lonely. To this day, I still struggle with that feeling of being abandoned or empty and not knowing what to do with myself. And there's a voice in my head that's always saying, tell me what to do, tell me what to do, what should I do, what should I do? And so I've had to, as a self-employed person, life, the universe, all my soul has designed it so that I'm confronted with that every day. I don't have anyone to tell me what to do. So I have had to learn how to ground myself and tell myself what to do. And I say I'm still, I'm not, I'm not a master at it because I'm still learning how to do it. And I'm still, in a way, just at the very beginning of that. But I can help other people to do it. And then the second area where I'm bad is being creative. You know, I just, I'm so analytical. I used my intellect and when I started trying to write novels in my early 30s, I was like making bullet points all the time. Oh, that's not creative, you know. And that's not to say I don't have creativity. Of course I do. And I've got talent in so, so, some areas. But create the, the, the art, oh my God, the discipline, the, the path of creativity is just so deeply different from anything that's predictable. It is dancing in uncertainty. 
And the people I revere are the artists and creators who just, just do that. In a way, anyone who's been to art school has been trained in that way of being. And it's fantastic. And I feel we've got so much to learn from it. It's a source of deep jealousy. Whenever I meet someone who's, who's an artist, I will get them in a corner and be like, tell me about how you see the world. How do you deal with problems? Because like you, from an early age, I was given a lot of responsibility, but I was never told how to do things. So I basically spent my entire life wandering around going, what's the right way to do this? How, how do I do this? Please someone tell me how I'm supposed to cope with this enormous responsibility. And it's, it's funny how you describe your experiences having gone through life, perpetually being faced with that exact same problem. And it does give you a unique way of being able to help other people with the same problem, even though you perhaps haven't cracked it yourself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's like you learn your tricks of the trade and I'm probably not of special value to a creative who's, you know, fully established in their creative practice. But I am of value to someone who's 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 taking baby steps or who's not established and I'm also of value to people who struggle with overwhelm and stress because I have been through that and I'm still always going through it and so that's i think you know it's so simple isn't it in a way and humble it's just how the world works you 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 get these challenges and then you learn something and then you can help other people with them and then you die you know and, and, uh, and hopefully <laughs> you know and the world progresses in some way you know the world you know, the world evolves and you hope that you know we, we're, we're doing creating some kind of non-entropic generative legacy for what for who knows what you <laughs> sometimes you say something lawrence like that just then about your summation of the human condition you think jesus that's the most pessimistic thing i've heard all day and then you say something else <laughs> you, it's like you you've made an, an art a, a, out of defying category and i think that's what i'm fascinated about with you can i write that down that's lovely let me put it on my website all yours <laughs> you've made an art out of defying category well i don't know um i think that the pessimist in me still could become less pessimistic. I mean, I do think that maybe, maybe I would benefit from being more. I mean, when I said that about, you know, and then we die, but perhaps I, I'm, I'm underselling my own sense of optimism. Maybe I'm more idealistic than that. And perhaps it's worth nailing my colors to the mast. And, and this is exactly why I call this research, right? Because I'm learning about myself. So if I were to be more honest or more authentic, I might say, well, personally, I don't believe in death. I just don't believe in death. I, I don't believe that consciousness ends when the body ends and that therefore the endeavors of the soul or the spirit in the physical body or, or the consciousness in the physical body amount to something that's additive and beneficial over time. Although I still want to say, and then everything, and then you have the heat death of the universe. But, I mean, <laughs> if you're, if you're, I think, I think maybe there's a cosmic joke that I'm more drawn to than optimism, which is much more funny and more liberating than any kind of optimism, actually. A cosmic joke, which is that we all do this stuff and it all goes in the end nowhere because this is it. The world, the cycles, the Eastern view of life and its meaning is everything is cyclical. Everything returns to zero. Everything has its um, moment, its efflorescence, and then it decays and collapses. And, and so there is no point to anything. Can that be held, that, I, that, that pointlessness with not optimism, but with real 
love and joy. That pointlessness can be utterly joyful. And I think that's, for me, a much deeper aspiration than to be optimistic. I'm coming to the same conclusion, Lawrence, nowhere near as eloquently and as profound, but I do believe that as someone who frequently or has in the past plumbed the depths and been to the bottom, that you realise that you you have a clearer line of sight to the top, perhaps, and you can you can be pessimistic while being very, very hopeful and creative and idealistic and all these things. That's my roundabout way of summarising kind of what you've just said. Did you say you can be pessimistic while being hopeful? Yes, and idealistic. But what, pes- what does pessimism mean for you? I think pessimism for me is just knowing the worst and what's possible in yourself and, and projecting onto others, perhaps. It's, it's just a, an, a, an unhelpful filter sometimes. Um, I probably err more towards the side of cynicism than pessimism. I've just lumped it together in a convenient label. But yes, semantically, I, I'm not sure it's a helpful thing to do to, de- what's, to define. Uh, what's cynicism? Well, it, it's actually a Greek school of thought, but I, I just interpret it as just, it's very similar to scepticism and having a very dominant analytical part of the brain, always looking for consequences and ah. you know possible outcomes and things that could go wrong. Ah. That's the analyst in me. I'm, I'm more analytical than creative. Well, no? this is the thing. It all comes down to, are you in control of your analyst or is it in control of you? Are you able to deploy the, the skeptic, analyst, cynic from a place of pleasure and joy? Or is it just reflexive? Is it a defense mechanism? That pops up or an, or even an anger is it driven even by anger perhaps or fueled by hurt or resentment at some things that have happened so this is what i'm saying i think that all is okay if it comes from that freedom but if it's not free it's not yours fully you're being played someone once said this a great teacher called jonathan k he's a fooling teacher he said if you're not playing you're being played and i love that because i'm being played all the time (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, i I should prefer but prepare a better definition of where my stance is on pessimism because i'm not entirely sure i know where it is i want to talk about this the lazy guru project and where that's living i i've 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 read your little book it's 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 really lovely and very characterful and i i find it great i I do wonder to, to what degree when you wrote that book are you doing that thing that as an author myself, I've done and authors sometimes do is you're, you're more sort of yelling at yourself than other people. Is there an element of that in the book? No, I mean, I was definitely yelling at other people. But what's what's really interesting about both of my the books I've done is that one, once I've done them, then it comes back to yell at me. And I, I it's a kind of funny thing. It's almost like I know the truth and then I have to actually figure out how to do it. I know the truth because I'm able to sort of you know, preach it. And then, oh, well, wait a second. It came out, what, I don't know, what, four years ago, five years ago. I am absolutely still learning how to be that lazy guru. I mean, it's almost a kind of torment to me sometimes. Or or, or see my friends or my wife will use it as a kind of, well, you're not exactly being lazy guru. Or if I'm struggling as well, just be like lazy guru. You know, so yes, it comes back to bite you if you preach at anyone in the world. But I started out with this very clear sense of what I wanted to say. And I kind of thought the world was a bit amiss and needed to be set aright. <laughs> and, uh, whereas with the optimist and pessimist, it was more 
an exploration. And if I were to write another book, which I, which I would love to, it would be, I think, trying to walk the line between those two things. In The Lazy Guru, you, you're selling this idea of living life uninhibited, a state of flow, unrestrained and fully expressed, and learning to recognize when you're not enjoying yourself. Isn't a bit of discomfort and suffering what we need to curb our excesses? Because th that's how we keep our egos in check, right? Otherwise, we'd all just be these happy, indulgent sort of Donald Trumps leaving chaotic, fatalistic lives without fear of consequence. Well, Donald Trump's a wonderful example of a sort of almost guru because he is like a clown and he is a sort of he's no he's no he's a free he's a free child in a way you know he's just like a kid so there's something about him that by the way is deeply resonant with people because of that it's very powerful it's potent and uh well i don't need to say anything about him um that's not been said but however the chapter in my book that speaks to this is undistract yourself because the particular peccadilloes that we each have that get in the way of flow can seem like freedom, right? So my freedom to have a coffee um, when I don't need one, when I really know I don't need one, but I kind of like the idea of getting juiced up a bit, my freedom to take uh, a shot of whiskey or to have a, I don't know, to have, you know, to smoke a spliff or whatever, my freedom to, to, to have set casual set, whatever freedom it is, you know, you know if it's actually true for you or not. And, and we can be very lost in these appetites. We can be very lost in these distractions from, from natural flow. And if we get really lost, I think maybe people are quite lost in them. Some people are lost in them. Like they can't even see their way back to what it was to be themselves. But they're not feeling themselves, right? I know when I've had a straight run of three weeks drinking coffee every day, which there's nothing wrong with coffee, but it doesn't do my metabolism any good i'm like i know i start to be in a kind of cloudy semi-conscious state where i'm thinking about my next coffee and like, well that's addiction so you have to differentiate between addiction and freedom and and this is why it's not an easy path you have to take this this is discipline in it the discipline of being natural is that you have to wean yourself off being unnatural and that's not easy. That is the hardest thing in the world. That's why AA exists. And what, 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 what limit is there to addictions? None. There's no limit to addictions, is there? Social media, emails, just shopping, I don't know. Uh, working. Working instead of being creative. You know, they never end. The distractions never end. And so it's like, an, it's just like a layer after layer. The idea that you have no control can be like you were talking about earlier on freedom, very freeing and a very liberating thought, but it can also be very scary and terrifying, which is why people fill that void with certainty, like jobs and fixations. Faith is, is in is of itself is, is both a, a, a thrilling prospect and a terrifying one. It's the most dangerous thing I think perhaps we've, we've created. I mean, faith is, it defies evidence, doesn't it? It defies logical thought is just absolute faith that this is a certainty and i won't question it the fact that there is a great universal force or energy or whatever you want to call that god or whatnot that that to me submitting to it is a scary thought having faith is a scary thought yeah yeah and your many lifetimes as a you know reincarnation lifetimes as a monk or a religious person are not helping 
but <laughs> if there is any such thing as reincarnation, just millions of us have been monks because you know for hundreds of years that's all you did, right? Like you were either a peasant or a monk, you know, or a soldier. So you know, there's no shortage of spaces. But, but to be serious, what I'm seeing is this sort of pivot that I I've seen myself that happened that's been happening for me, which is that there's a belief in you that's deeper than thought, that's deeper than belief, that it knows that trusting in life is the best possible thing, right? And it's not just thrilling, as you say, which I don't personally find it thrilling all the time, but, but it's, it's more effective than, we're not talking about like fundamentalist religious faith. We're not talking about walking through the streets blindfolded faith. We're talking about a faith in yourself, a faith in the natural self-organizing power of your own brain, the self-organizing potential of human societies. We're talking about the potential of the natural order to balance and rectify itself. But all, all of this depends on our acceptance of death and being okay with it. You know, nature is full of death and life. And, you know, if we are hanging on to life too hard like we're doing right now in the current pandemic and i'm sorry i'm just going to say that what happens is all sorts all sorts of authoritarian controls come in both inside ourselves and outside ourselves driven by fear and if it's a choice between faith and fear um and if it's that black and white i don't know i i'm certainly going for faith because it is more scary but it's way less scary than than the fear the fear, the fear avenue. It's not a great, that's not a good way for you. Look, you've pulled on a thread here and I might just indulge it while I've got four minutes left of your time. What scares me more than the whole faith thing and the thing we've just spoken about is just listening to you now and, and reading around it, I find myself very easily persuaded or very open to other people's opinions if it's compelling enough. And I found, I found that this Lawrence character in The Optimist to be the same. He met all these people who gave him different takes on it. And then the next chapter, I found it really funny. He was suddenly completely convinced of that way of thinking. And the next chapter meets another guest who gave him another take and he was convinced again. I find that tendency to perhaps vacillate based on the opinion and influence of other people, probably more scary than faith. Yeah. Do, you identi do you identify with that? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I totally and for me what's so heartening about the um recent times in my life is that i'm becoming more clear about what i believe in that's great it's such a great feeling it's like shit there's some compensation for being 50 you know and 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 yet uh, that's still in me i i'm not so pulled around by other people's points of view anymore um but when i wrote that book i was also trying to create a comedy character and that was part of the character. And it was true because it was who I was, but it was also amplified. And so to be scared of your um, credulity is, 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 is good. <laughs> it's good. You, do, you don't want to go there. Uh, you find your own center. You find your marrow, right? And this is about, I suppose that's what this podcast is for. You're finding your own marrow. Yeah, the vegetarian alternative to marrow. But yeah, yeah, I find my marrow.
what's next for Lawrence? I mean, in the age of a climate emergency, what, what, what are we going to expect? Can we expect a sequel to The Optimist or will the, the art of no idea be able to save us? I'm so tempted to write a book called The Pessimist because it would just be so neat. But I think I'm more likely to write The Art of Having No Idea. On the other hand, what I really long to do is write an, a piece of fiction, which I started doing when I was 30 and I never finished it. Not that one, but I, I, but I just love... I think for me, what I love is, is imagination and I want to bring, I want to have more fun. And I'm not, I, I'm less interested in, I suppose, what I'd love to be by the end of this year or certainly by the end of my 50s, you know, in 10 years is that I've, I've left truth behind me as a thing to talk about and I'm just living it. I think that that's a great way to sum this up. Um, I'd just like to be it and not have to talk about it. And then it's much more, life's much more fun and interesting than I think. So, so letting go of the perhaps over analytical hyper self-awareness side of things. I don't think it's about letting go of it. I think that's part of who I am, but I think it's when you learn a lesson, eventually you're going to just have to, you're going to want to enjoy putting it into practice, aren't you? But I, I love helping people because it's in my nature to enjoy it. So that'll carry on. But the shape that it takes in my life, I, I would love to be much more liberated from the need for meaning. I'd like to be free. That's my goal. Good goal. Listen, Lawrence, thank you ever so much for this. Um, that, that's pretty much the conclusion of my questions and, and you've got to be somewhere to be now, so. Great. Whoa, someone lasted the full show. Well done. Congratulations for listening. You get the secret voucher code for unlimited wealth and success. All you need to do is rate the show in your podcast app to reassure me that this project isn't just another bunch of privileged Westerners feathering the wall of their elaborate self-ordered echo chamber. I'll see you on Twitter at Chris underscore Kenworthy or suggest a guest by emailing podcast at chriskenworthy.co.uk. Bye for now and thanks for listening.